Well, again, good morning. And we pick back up with our sermon series uh, in the book of Psalms. And this morning, Psalm 51. And before we get into a psalm that is, is known uh, by many of us, I want to reflect for just a moment on betrayal. Now, throughout history, a lot of famous betrayals, you learn about them in school. Uh, Marcus Brutus betrayed Julius Caesar, the famed line, A2 Brute. Uh, then you've got Benedict Arnold uh, betraying America, a revolutionary war, the, the turncoat. And of course, you don't have to look far uh, for Hollywood betrayals. Uh, there is a new one every day, front page of some magazine, so I won't begin to list them. But one that did come to mind was the betrayal of Han Solo by Lando Calrissian. <clears throat> but seriously, betrayal is a, is a big deal. Uh, we, we're all aware that it is a serious and painful offense. It is the, the ripping apart of relationship. The Bible, of course, is full of them as well. Uh, Samson and Delilah, uh, one that most of us would know. Of course, the most uh, infamous uh, would be that of Judas betraying Jesus. But before that, we encounter the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, 2 Samuel. It's a, a story of betrayal, adultery, murder. So years earlier, David had fled for his life uh, from Saul. He was accompanied by a, a band of brothers, brothers in arms, men who were with him, men who would defend him, uh, loyal followers. Uh, these were, were faithful soldiers, trusted friends, men who would give their very lives for David. And one of those men, David's uh, friend and fellow soldier, was Uriah. In 2 Samuel 11, we read that, that David was neglecting his military duties as king. Uh, he was at home when he should have been with his army fighting. And while he was at home where he should not have been, uh, one day he was walking along the, uh, the pathway that, that outlined the roof of his palace. And he saw a woman. He looked. He stared. A beautiful woman who was bathing. He asked about her. He desired her. He sent for her. He slept with her. Some even consider rape. Now who was she? Well, we know Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah, who was off in battle, faithfully defending his friend and king. Bathsheba, as you know in the story, gets pregnant by David, who knows that he had taken his friend's wife. And what does David do? Well, he has Uriah. He sends for Uriah to, to return from the battle, supposedly to give an update on, on how things are going uh, on the front line. And, and then David encourages Uriah after a meal, go home, get some rest, lay with your wife, and then when you're refreshed tomorrow, return to the battlefield, trying to cover his tracks. Uriah, full of honor, refuses to go into his home, uh, but lies outside on the ground, refusing comfort when his men are fighting. So David tries again, delays his return to the battlefield, uh, feeds him, gets him drunk in hopes that, that maybe now he will, he will go home 
Uh, he will sleep with his wife and, and think that he is the one who got her pregnant. But, re but Uriah refuses again. So, unable to cover his tracks, uh, David sends Uriah back to the battlefield. And he sends him with a confidential note in hand to give to the commander. He hands the note to the commander. The commander opens it and the note says to make sure that Uriah is killed in battle, which he was, uh, along with several other valiant men. And so here we come to a story about King David. King David, who we, we know is the man after God's own heart. A man who was a good king, known as a, a military champion. Uh, early in his life, a young man who defeated the giant Goliath on behalf of the people of God. In faith, looking to his God. Compassionate toward his people, passionate for his God. And yet today, our story, David is covered in blood. A story of betrayal, adultery. Murder. Now think about it for a moment. Betrayal, adultery, murder. It's one thing to think about ourselves as being betrayed. But it's another to think about ourselves as being the betrayer. And the sobering reality, if, if we are to take the fallenness of our world, if we are to take our own sin seriously enough, then we will recognize that if this could happen to David... It could happen to you. It could happen to me. And so this morning, we desperately need to hear God's word in Psalm 51. Uh, what it says about us, what it says about God, what it says about salvation. And so that's the, the context of Psalm 51, uh, where we'll be this morning. You'll find it on page uh, 474 if you're using the, the Bible under the chair in front of you. So Psalm 51, let's take a moment to pray uh, before we hear God's word. We look to you this morning, you who are good and gracious, merciful, faithful, our God. And we pray that you would meet us, meet us in the depth of, of pain in this story. Uh, meet us in uh, the depth of, of sin in this story. And would you reveal to us the grandeur, the majesty of your grace? Would you now help us to enter in, opening your word to us and us to your word? That we might not only see, but that we would be people who are changed by you. And so we ask you in your mercy to do this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to hear the word of God uh, from Psalm 51. Uh, though I'm going to begin with parts of 2 Samuel uh, for context. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the time of grieving was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It, it used to eat from his hand and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and, he was, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David, hearing this story, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan looked David in the eye and said to him, You are the man. And David wrote Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me. From blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I, I would bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is the word of God. It is given to us for our good, ultimately for his glory. And so let's turn to it now. Well, as we take a look at Psalm 51 this morning, we're going to consider three things. 
Uh, we're going to look at the, the, the context, the content, and the cross. Uh, the, the context, the, the setting, the backdrop for the psalm, which we've already considered. So point one, we have done. And then we'll move to the content. What, is, uh, what do we find in Psalm 51? What do we see there? And then finally, the cross. How does the cross inform this psalm? So to start, or, or rather continue, uh, the content of Psalm 51. Well, the content can be summarized in one word. It'll be no surprise to you that one word is repentance. Repentance. And you have heard from this uh, pulpit multiple times, from multiple preachers, that the, the regular pattern of the Christian life is repentance and faith. One step after the other. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That we might follow our God into a new obedience. Jesus' first words, Mark's gospel. Repent and believe the good news. And then Martin Luther's very first statement of the 95 that he would nail on that church door. The first statement. All of life is repentance. All of life following Jesus is repentance. And yet Calvin said, it is easy to use the words faith and repentance. But they are the things that are most difficult for us. You see, many, if not most of us, misunderstand repentance uh, to varying degrees. Now, some of us have what I might call a repentance aversion. We're allergic to repentance. We are going to avoid it at all costs. I mean, it seems so depressing, so introspective. It, it, it seems to, to not acknowledge the victory of the cross. And I tell you, if you take a look just at verses uh, 3, 4, and 5, I mean, David's self-awareness, the depth of insight that he has into his own heart, that could lead anyone to despair. Now, I think of a gentleman in the church uh, where I grew up. Uh, the church that I grew up in, very much like this one, every Sunday we had a corporate confession of sin. And then oftentimes we would pause for that moment of, of confessing silently our, our individual sins uh, before God. And so week after week, I was, was learning to confess sin. But there was a, uh, a man, a part of our church, and I remember when he left. Because he got tired of it. He said, I am not that bad. I am tired of coming to church and having to look at my sin. I am not that bad of a person. And so he left the church, misunderstanding of repentance. Now, while some have a, a repentance aversion, others are very skilled practitioners at repentance. Uh, however, it's often false repentance. Uh, the gospel-centered life helps us identify our tendencies toward false repentance uh, by looking at the patterns of remorse and resolution. Okay, the pattern of false repentance, remorse <laughs> In resolution when we deal with our sin. Remorse, I can't believe I did that. Resolution, I promise, I will do better next time. Anybody familiar with those? I know I am. But here's the problem. 
two major misconceptions about our hearts, okay? The first, we think too highly of ourselves. Deep down, we don't really believe that our sin is that bad, that we are that broken, just like the guy that, that left the church that I grew up in. And so what happens when, when we sin? We act surprised. I can't believe that I did that, which is just another way of saying, I'm not really like that. No, 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 no. I'm not really like that. And, and because we don't want to look at it, we can't face it. What do we do? We justify it. We deny it. We, we, we blind ourselves to it. So first, we think too highly of ourselves. Second, if we're honest, we, we think that deep down, we've, we've got the power to change ourselves. We believe that if we really just try harder, resolving not to do it again, then I'll just stop doing it, whatever it is. Well, true repentance goes well beyond remorse and resolution. Uh, one startling definition of repentance that I came across uh, comes from Tim Keller, uh, who writes, Repentance is killing the habits of the heart that are killing you without killing yourself. Well, Psalm 51, David expresses true repentance. Okay, but before we talk a little bit further about repentance, how did David get there to begin with? I mean, how did David get to Psalm 51? How did he get to a place of beginning to see his sin and, and beginning this process of repentance? Well, have you ever been caught with your fly down? Uh, maybe a little something stuck between your teeth or... Well, something hanging on your nose? How'd you find out about it? Someone told you about it. And here, Nathan tells David. In 2 Samuel, Nathan confronts David about his sin. Nathan, as one commentator puts it, God sends Nathan not to condemn, but to convert. Not wielding a sword but handling, handling a scalpel to cut into a heart and remove a cancerous tumor. Nathan could see what David couldn't see about himself. And God used Nathan to save David's life. Now, if we step back for a moment and we look at the this, this story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba, I mean, we might be sitting here thinking, come on, that is so obvious. His sin is so completely obvious. I am not that blind. If I was doing that, I would know that I was wrong. Well, often our sin might be obvious to someone else and not to us. Because what about sin? It's deceptive by its very nature. And often, as I already pointed out, we, we seek to deceive ourselves about the depth of our own sinfulness. Well, David was fortunate. He was blessed to have a friend. One who cared enough to call him out and to point him to the Lord. So, do you have Nathans in your life? Friends who you let into your life, who can see who you are, who can love you despite of that, who will call you out, uh, shoot straight with you. And then another question that would go with that is, do you make it safe 
for people to be a Nathan in your life? Approachable. Do you invite them in? Well, for my own life, as I think about various people who uh, speak into my life, honestly, it usually takes me a long time to admit they're right. Uh, it might be hours. Uh, sometimes it might be days or even weeks. But there was one time that it took no time. Uh, just like David, I remember uh, I got it right at the moment. And I like to consider this Nathan minus the parable. Uh, her name was Christy. It was our sophomore year of college. Uh, we were co-leaders of a small group Bible study together. Uh, we had a good friendship. We'd known each other for, for more than a year. We worked very well together, complimented uh, each other's gifts. And I remember one afternoon when we were planning and we were preparing for our small group like we did every week, and I asked uh, Christy a question, and I will never forget, she turns on her heels, she looks me in the eye, and she says, Camper Monday, I am not going to let you guilt manipulate me anymore. I was stunned. I was speechless. I thought a parable would have been nice to soften the blow. <laughs> but I knew that she was right. I knew that she had seen something that, that I didn't see clearly. She was putting words, articulating something that I could not have articulated before. But there it was in front of me. Very real, very ugly, uh, very hurtful, my sin. Well, God's grace got a hold of me, beginning in that, in that piercing moment, and, and I began to learn true repentance. Now, if we, if we think about repentance for a moment, our church's statement of faith uh, puts it this way. Repentance is a saving grace. In other words, it's a, a gift from God by His graciousness to us. <clears throat> Repentance is a saving grace by which a sinner, having become truly aware of his sinfulness, three things, by which a sinner, truly becoming aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God and Christ, grieves for and hates his sin, and turns from that sin to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. <clears throat> Now, I was fortunate. I was at a Christian community on campus. I was a part of a, a local church. I was in a small group. And I had a friend like Christy. And God's grace was at work in my life. Because she confronted me. She exposed me. She saw what I couldn't see about myself. As I look back and I think, I was in this context of beginning to really understand the mercy of God in Christ. And so because of that, I was able to, to look more closely at my sin and, and began to really grieve it and hate it. Not just because of the consequences, but because of the, the deep pain and the offense that it was to another. And I was beginning to learn to turn from that sin and to cry out to God because I was helpless to stop on myself. Uh, Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. I'm very grateful for the wounds that I received that day. 
Well, the story continued over the the next few years. Uh, God did a a work of of healing transformation in me, not only as I I rounded out college, uh, where I was was learning more and more to examine my heart, search me, O God, know my thoughts, test me, try me, please show me. And what I began to realize is that I, I hadn't just done this to Christy. I realized this was the way I treated just about everybody in my life. And, and I, uh, I recognized that the, the patterns, that they went back, I could see them through high school and middle school and throughout my whole life and even within my family's history. Uh, my first couple of years out of college when I was, um, uh, the, well, at least the, the first couple of years that I served as a, a campus minister within university, I remember the beginning of each year I would sit down and as, as we were having our initial staff meeting for the new year, I would say to my staff team, I'd tell them, a little, remind them of the story. I'd say, Here, here's a place where I struggle and where I'm growing. If you ever feel like I'm manipulating you, I probably am. I need you to call me out on it. Be gracious and forgive me, but I need, I need help with this. Now, I've seen a lot of growth in that. Do I still struggle? Yeah, but not nearly as often, not nearly with the intensity that it once was. And like any sin, it's, it's really the flip side of, of good things, of, of, of gifts, of, you know, the, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But is that, one thing that I want to point out is though I use an example from 20 years ago, uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't places that I still need to repent of today. I just use that as an example because I can see much more clearly the sin in my life then. And there are many things that I'm still blind to and learning about today. Well, the gospel calls us and empowers us to true repentance. We sang about it a moment ago. True belief and true repentance. Stop dreaming, fondly dreaming about fitness and thinking we have it all right, but turn, throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And according to the Bible, true repentance has four parts. And uh, pastors uh, Bob Thune and Will Walker put it this way. True repentance. First, it's oriented toward God, not me. Second, it's motivated by true godly sorrow and not just selfish regret. Third, it's concerned with the heart, not just with external actions. And fourth, it always looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. So those are the the four parts. Let me walk through them very briefly and and relate them, tie them back into our, our psalm or actually pull them out of our psalm. So first, true repentance is oriented toward God, not me. Verse 4, David cries out, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now yes, did he hurt Uriah? Did he hurt Bathsheba? Yes, but he is recognizing that at the core is a break from God, is sin against God. A true repentance, second, is motivated by True godly sorrow and not just selfish regret. Verse 3, David says, I know 
my transgressions. They are ever before me. My sin I cannot hide. It is before me. Well, that produces in him a a godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Uh, Third, true repentance is concerned with the heart, not just with external actions. You see, it's, uh, re- repentance is a, it's a relational category, not a behavioral category. So it's not just about external actions, what I do, but it's about the heart, the relationship of the heart to others and, and to God. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. And think about that for just a moment. Create. That is a, a miracle word. Not improve, not make some adjustments. Lord, would you create, would you speak life where there is death? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not. You will not despise. And then finally, true repentance always looks to Jesus for deliverance. Always looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. Uh, Verse 14, David cries out, deliver me. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. I am guilty. I did it. Deliver me, O God, of my salvation. In Acts 3, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord Jesus. Times of refreshing. And we hear that. David recognizes the the part of the fruit of repentance is joy and gladness. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my feet dance. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So, repentance. The crux of Psalm 51. But how? How do we we live this life of true repentance? Because if you're like me, maybe you have sought to, to do it on your own, and I just can't hunker down and muster up enough to really make it happen. So how? How can we live a life of true repentance? Well, that brings us to the final point, the cross. The cross. Well, as as one theologian points out, the power for repentance, as David knew, it's found in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. According to your steadfast love. Some of your translations, according to your unfailing love. You see, the way that David killed what was killing him without killing himself was to throw himself on God. On God's steadfast, 
unfailing, all-powerful, transforming love. Have mercy on me, O God, you of steadfast love. Because you see, though David was unfaithful, God remained faithful. Though we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And David recognized the faithfulness of God. Because before, there was, before David's betrayal of Uriah, there was his betrayal of God. Uh, before David committed physical adultery with Bathsheba, he committed spiritual adultery against God. Because in the end, we're all David caught in adultery. Because all sin, all sin is spiritual adultery. All sin is betrayal. It is all unfaithfulness to God. And so James is right when he says that we are an adulterous people. But not only from the lips of James. Jesus himself puts it this way in Revelation 2. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken me. Okay, now that's weighty. It should be. But here's what David got. Here's how David could, could write this psalm, could pray this psalm, could, could come out of the, of the devastation of his own sin. And not be undone. Here's, here's what he got, or rather what got him. In the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 2, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Did you know that? God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness, most clearly expressed through the cross of Jesus, leads us to true repentance. You see, God's love is strong enough. It is strong enough to assure us, just as it did David, strong enough to assure us of our value as children of God, to convict us of our sin, and to change, to transform our hearts and thus our lives. <clears throat> when I was a, a campus minister, I had the, the privilege of serving alongside a young woman named Ashley. And I, I remember hearing her tell her story the first time I uh, heard her tell it. Uh, Ashley had been a, a wayward, directionless, pot-smoking teen. Uh, she didn't like Christians. In fact, she thought all of us to be uh, self-righteous. Uh, she mocked the little Christian prayer group that would meet uh, at school each morning. Well, one day, uh, Ashley, a, a bit high, uh, walked into the school building, and she ran into one of those Christian girls. Ashley gave her a, a look, an unkind look, said an unkind word, and, but the girl looked at Ashley with compassion in her eyes and spoke a kind word to her. While the love of Jesus flowed down that girl's cheeks, in the form of tears. Tears over Ashley's brokenness. And as she told the story, the way she put it is that her heart was melted. The love of Jesus overwhelmed her and changed her. That God's kindness led her to repentance. 
And she repented and believed the good news. And so it is with us. So it is with us the, the first time we come to Jesus. And also each and every day as we come to him again and again and again. Following him by faith. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And the most powerful, most beautiful, most profound display of his kindness and love is the cross of Jesus. And so let's look to him. Let's look to Jesus. Repent and believe this good news. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for giving yourself for us. We thank you for your, your unfailing, your steadfast love. And we pray that you would convince our hearts more and more that your love is strong enough. Strong enough to assure us of our value, convict us of our sin, and change our hearts so we ask that you would lead us into true repentance and fill us with the joy of your salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name.